Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide of Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. If you're a fan of the genre, it's indispensable and makes a great gift for that music fan in your life. Everything is on the one, the first guy to funk. You know you need it. Whether you're watching on YouTube or through funkandstuff.net or listening to the audio version of this as a podcast on iTunes and other leading providers, as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support in the program. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe. You can do that on the Funk and Stuff channel through YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and thrives. And uh, also Quick Takes, TR, uh, TIR Quick Takes is also there, and you'll want to sign up for that. It's free, and you'll get shows before other people do. You'll get inside information. Be part of the movement that is Truth and Rhythm, and get friends and family to uh, subscribe as well. Much appreciated. This episode features the founder of one of the best-known, most distinctive, most dynamic, most beloved, and long-lasting soul funk groups of all time. Joining the Truth and Rhythm conversation is none other than Tower of Power saxophonist, composer, producer, and all-around leader, Emilio Castillo. Now celebrating 50 years and counting, T.O.P. and its world-famous horn section emerged from California's Bay Area in the late 1960s, and they've gone on to crank out more than 15 studio albums, including 2018 sensational comeback, Soul Side of Town, several live recordings, and numerous hits and cherished songs. Those songs include You're Still a Young Man, What is Hip, So Very Hard to Go, This Time It's Real, Time Will Tell, Don't Change Horses in the Middle of a Stream, You Ought to Be Having Fun, You Gotta Funkifies, Soul Vaccination, Squib Cakes, Drop It in the Slot, it takes two to make it happen. We came to play, and so many others. Concurrent with their own success, the TOP Horns became among the record industry's busiest session players, seemingly having worked with the most famous artists of the 1970s and 1980s. Those include Otis Redding, Santana, Aerosmith, Elton John, The Rolling Stones, Little Feet, Heart, Grand Central Station, Journey, Cat Stevens, Huey Lewis, and the News. Helen Reddy, The Grateful Dead, The Monkees, John Lee Hooker, Rod Stewart, The Brothers Johnson, and so many more. And what just may be the most in-depth interview ever done with Castillo, he reveals Tower of Power's soup to nut story, from how he became a musician to continuing to in inject their busy performing schedule with that same passion and joy today. Along the way are insights into the creative process and what made the band unique, specifics about classic songs and albums, lurid tales of drug and substance abuse, recovery and redemption, and unforgettable stories of high points and his incredible experiences. It's time to hear from the man himself about the powerhouse band that will always be hipper than hip, Tower of Power. I am thrilled to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm show, saxophonist, composer, producer, Emilio Castillo, a founding member of one of the true giants of soul, R&B, and funk music, the legendary, iconic Tower of Power. 
Emilio, how are you today? I'm good today. How are you doing, Scott? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. You're welcome. And I'm assuming you're coming to us from the Bay Area today, or where are you? I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, well, okay. Is that is that home today, nowadays, or? It has been for 25 years. Wow, okay. Yeah. Nice. I was in the Bay Area for 20 years, and then I went down to L.A. for 15, and the earthquake happened, and I wound up in Scottsdale, Arizona. <laughs> wow, I can't blame you there. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I'm in Charlotte now, but I went through so many big earthquakes out there, so I'm right there with you. You're in Charlotte, North Carolina? Now I am, yeah. Oh, I like it there. You know, I want to uh, jump back and then do a little bit of history, and we'll get up to the current stuff. So um, test your memory banks a little bit. Okay. <laughs> so going way back, Emilio, could you tell me, you know, how you first got into music and why the saxophone specifically? You know, I got into a little bit of trouble. Um, it was the beginning of summer, and me and my brother, who's 10 months older than me, Jack, and our best friend, Jody Lopez, we were going to the swimming pool in, in town at the high school, Washington High School. And on the way there, we would always go through a mall. And uh, there was a Mervyn's department store there. At the time, they had these T-shirts that were really popular with the young men. They were high-necked, tight on the arms, sort of tight T-shirts in all these sort of pastel colors, peach, turquoise, you know, light green. And all the boys liked them, you know. And so we had this great idea. We'd go in, put on three of those T-shirts, put our shirt over it, and continue on to the pool. And we walked out, and the manager was waiting outside the store. And I called the police, and, uh, you know, they called my dad. Uh, I was 14 at the time. And my dad made us apologize to the uh, store manager and took us home. He gave us a notebook. He said, fill it out with why you're never going to steal again. And while you're in that room filling out that notebook, I want you to think of a reason, uh, something that's going to keep you out of trouble this summer or you're never coming out of that room. And the Beatles had just come out and uh, everybody was really getting into the rock thing. And we said, we want to play music, Dad. And he said, get in the car. And we got in the car and drove to Allegro Music. He took us in. He went, whatever you want pointed at the wall. All the instruments were hanging on the wall. And there was a snare drum there, and there was a saxophone and a guitar, and, you know, a trumpet, different instruments. And my dad used to bartend at a place called Nero's Nook, which was at a hotel called the Cabana, which is kind of like a, a Caesar's Palace type place over in Palo Alto. And uh, this place, Nero's Nook, always had these bands called show bands, like the Big Beats and the Swingin' Lads. And we would go there to pick up my dad sometimes, and I'd hear these bands rehearsing, you know. And they were really good. They played songs like Harlem Nocturne and Night Train and Gigolo and stuff like that. And I always thought the sax player was the coolest guy. So I pointed to the sax. My brother, he thought the drummer was the coolest guy. So he pointed to the drums. And we went home and... Uh, you know, I'd like to tell you that we practiced for years and years and then joined the band and started our career. But we did the exact opposite. We started the band and then we learned how to play. 
And we were in the room and uh, Jody, who had a guitar, he was on vacation in Mexico about a month before that and got a guitar. And he knew how to play that intro to uh, Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. Dun, 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 That's all he knew. He didn't know any of the chords or anything, you know, just that. And, you know, the snare drum would come in, dun, 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 dun. My brother was doing that and I was squeaking on the saxophone. My mother walked in, she looked at us, she goes, they're going to be huge stars. And, uh, you know, from that day forward, the band has been my sole passion in life. I'm literally, I never did anything else after that. I was really good in school. I didn't have any problems in school, but my focus just went to the band from that point on. And I've been a band leader ever since. My brother was the leader at first because he's 10 months older, you know. My dad came to me and he said, uh, you need to be the leader. And I was like, no, Jack's the leader. He's older, you know. He goes, no, he says, you need to be the leader. I go, I don't want to be the leader. Why do I got to be the leader? He says, because you're the one that has the musical talent. You're the one that's helping these guys play and tell them what to do. And he made me be the leader. And, you know, I thank God that he did. You know? And I've been a band leader ever since. Wow. So 15 years old to 68, I've been a band leader. Did, did you have any lessons at all? Yeah, he got me different lessons. You know, I was playing the sax. And he got me a teacher at the music store. My music department at the high school was bleak, real bleak, you know. And, uh, and, and I wasn't into the type of music they were playing. You know, they're doing shiny stockings, but there wasn't a full band. There was like a trumpet and a bass one day and a, a piano and a tenor the other day. And, you know, there was never a full band. So I, I couldn't get into it. So I was in the garage. You know, and I had 45s and albums and I'm listening to them. I'm trying to figure out the chords. And, you know, but I, he got me some sax lessons at the local music store, Allegro Music. Uh, Mr. Levin taught me. And then um, I said, you know, I want to play the organ. And he bought me a Farfisa organ. And, you know, and no sooner did he buy it. And immediately the animals came out and they had the Vox organ. And it was much cooler. And I said, oh, Dad, I want the Vox organ. He bought me a Vox organ, you know. And he got me some lessons down the street. This little old lady, uh, Armenian lady named Mrs. Sherezian. And uh, she used to teach me, you know, like the rabbit goes down the road and this goofy little song. I hated it, you know. And I told my dad, I don't want to go see Miss Sherezian, you know. And he got me this teacher named Dale Price, who was this uh, gay guy in Sunnyvale that was an incredible organist. He had one of those, like, four-tier organs, you know. And what he told me was, he goes, whatever you want to play, you bring me the recording, I'll teach you how to play it. And the first thing I learned, I, I said, I want to learn that organ solo. On, I put a spell on you by the Alan Price set. And I went there and he taught me that. I was like, yeah, this is. And then I wanted to learn Misty by Groove Holmes. And he taught me how to do that, you know. And then, you know, I got bored with the organ and I said, I want to play guitar. My dad bought me a Vox guitar, one of those teardrop ones. And I, I said, you know, he took me to get some lessons. And I told the teacher what I wanted. I didn't want to be able to go, you know, play a bunch of notes in solo. That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to know how to play the chords because I knew how to play chords on the keyboard. I wanted to be able to play it on guitar as well and learn all the chords to the songs that I liked. So I told the guy, just show me all the positions of chords. And he did that. And by that time, 
I was my ear. I always had a good ear. I'm listening to these 45s, and I'm figuring out what they're doing there, and I'm showing the guys how to play those songs, you know. And then my dad got me this teacher because he went to those musicians where he worked. He said, you know, my son, he's really into this music thing, you know. What kind of a teacher can I get him to really help him? He's the band leader. He's teaching them the songs. He's always trying to learn these records. And they said, go see this guy named Norman Bates. Norman Bates was the bass player with Dave Brubeck. And I would go there, and he would give me theory lessons. He'd tell me, go stand at the window. And i go over there, and he'd hit a couple notes on the piano. He said, what notes are those? And I go, I don't know. He goes, well, guess. I go, C and D, and you go, no, you know, and uh, and then he hit some other notes, I, I, I couldn't guess, you know, and then he'd go to the window, and I'd hit anything on the piano, and he'd tell me what notes they were, you know, mm -hmm. and he started to teach me ear training, and then he started to teach me interval training, so he'd hit a major third, and he said, you hear that? And I go, yeah, and then he'd flap the third, and he'd go, now, do you hear that? I go, yeah, he goes, what's the difference? I go, the second one was sadder, he was right, that's a minor third. He goes, now he hit the major third. He goes, what's this? I go, it's happier. He goes, major third. He taught me what a fifth sounds like, what a fourth sounds like, how the seven leads to the one, how the five leads to the one, leading tones, circle of fifths, all this stuff. And I'm learning this stuff. You know, my dad's paying for it, so I'm learning it. But I'm wondering, why am I doing this? It, it's not interesting to me, and it's, I, I couldn't understand why I was doing it. And one day when I was in the garage, and I had figured out by that time about five songs, and I was like on the sixth song that I was figuring out the chords, and I went, oh, that chord is the one, and they just went to the four, and when they go da-da-da-da, that's the five, and it leads to the one. And it was like Tetris, man. Everything fell into place, and I realized, oh, and then, you know, I was always good with math. And so I realized music is math, it's numbers, you know? And so I went to, by this time I had Rocco in the band playing bass and he didn't know how to read or nothing. I said, from now on, instead of me telling you what the chords are, I'm gonna tell you what the numbers are. And he's like, what? I go, and I showed him, I go, look, here's a scale. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. I go, now here's the one chord. The two chords are minor, the three chords are minor, the four chords are major, the five chords are major, the six chord is a minor, unless you make it major. It sounds like this. I showed them all about numbers. I said, so from now on, when I teach you a song, if the key ain't right, it's too high or it's too low, we're just going to change keys. And you don't got to go, well, what, what is it in G when I was playing in C? All you got to remember is it's one, and then it goes to four, <laughs> and then winds up hitting that five, and you know, you, you'll get it, you know. And for the rest of our career, we talked in numbers. <laughs> wow. So when you finally started getting it together musically, what were some of the biggest influences on you that were out there at that time? Well, when I started playing, you know, with rock music, like I said, the Beatles came out, you know, and we, we dug the Beatles, but we were always into more soulful stuff. You know, I, I grew up in Detroit till I was 11. And like I say, my dad was a bartender. So he was always in the nightlife, you know, and, and, you know, when I grew up in Detroit, that was in the fifties and the hi-fi had just come out, you know? And so my parents had albums and they listened to stuff like Dinah Washington, Nat King Cole, the Platters, the Ink Spots, the Mills Brothers, 
You know, and they also listened to Elvis Presley and Bill Doggett. You know, I dug Bill Doggett, Honky Tonk. And I was an avid listener of records and songs. My mother said, when I was six years old, I was sitting on the toilet peeing and I was singing Only You by the Platters and nailing it lick for lick. I was always a really good little mimic. So nowadays there'd be a video of that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> So uh, how old were you when you first got the, starting the pieces together for what would be Tower of Power? Well, as I said, we, we were in rock music, you know, and we went through a few uh, things. At one point we dressed up like Batman and the Robins. We called ourselves the Gotham City Crime Fighters. And we're playing rock, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Rolling Stones and the animals, really dug the animals and the more soulful kind of British groups. and. The Rascals, we dug the Rascals, you know. But then I saw this band when I was 16 years old called the Spiders. Now now, I, now I've been doing it for a couple of years almost, you know, at least a year and a half. And I'm, I'm starting to understand what I'm doing, you know. I could figure out songs quicker. I could show them to the guys quicker. I'm getting better at it. And we do this gig at the A Street Roll Arena in San Lorenzo. And you know, we had a sax player at the time, and I was playing keyboards, and I had my alto on the organ, and I was singing lead. And, uh, and we're, we're doing sort of soulful stuff, 99 and a half, but it wasn't like a soul band, because we only had one tenor. And, you know, and, but this band that we opened for was called The Spiders, S-P-Y-D-E-R-S. They were never famous, and they broke up eventually, but they were my idols. They had a three-piece horn section, really well arranged. They were super mimics, so they would do, you know, um, all these different soul tunes, and it sounded exactly like the record. They would even do tunes like um, I'm on the Outside Looking In by Little Anthony and the Imperials. They had incredible background vocals, you know, and this guy, Dennis Delacqua, was the lead singer. He was so freaking soulful. I, I mean, from that moment on, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be as soulful as Dennis Delacqua. I wanted to play the organ like he did, have the alto there, have two other horns. And when they, when I wasn't singing and got to the horn bridge, I would chime in and play that. And that's why I started to do it. My goal was to sound as tight and as good as the spiders. And right at the same time, Sly and the Family Stone started playing at a nightclub like 20 minutes from our house, 15 minutes from our house, called Frenchies in Hayward. And this is before they ever released a record. And they, they signed a contract there for a year. And we used to go there, me and Rocco would go there, and we would sneak in. We'd climb over the cyclone fence in the back of the place and go into the swimming pool and sneak in on Friday night and Saturday night. And we would stay till 8 in the morning. They'd get free breakfast at 8 a.m. And Sly would play from 9 till 2 and then from 3 until 8. You know, 45 on, 15 off, 45 on, 15 off. The, during the first, you know, before hours uh, shows, there was dancing. And everybody was dancing. They were super excited, super excited. My dad turned me on to them. And uh, after hours, they had a law in Hayward, it was called the Blue Law, where they, they closed the bar so there was no drinking, but there was also no dancing. And the whole Bay Area. There was only two places in the Bay Area where you could dance after 2 a.m. One was Fremont, where I was living, and one was Albany on the other side of the Bay. 
And we wound up playing after hours clubs there, you know, for a couple of years because we were a good dance band. But we used to sneak in and watch Sly. And, you know, after hours, because there's no dancing, they had to go down onto the dance floor. They would have ham bone contests or they would play a song and then each guy would move over to the next instrument. And they kept doing that every couple of minutes until they got all the way around back to their instrument, you know, really quirky kind of showman stuff like that. And the thing about them was, you know, we didn't want to like emulate their sound. We wanted to emulate their excitement, their live show excitement. We wanted to have that element in our band. And I watched them a lot. And then about halfway through the year, you know, Sly started to blow up. You know, the record came out and they became really popular and he wanted to get out of that contract and the guy wouldn't let him up because, you know, the place was packed, right? And so he started to not show up. And some of those nights we would go there and the band would just wow us because they'd have to play the whole night without the leader. You know, Sly wasn't there. And at the time, you know, Sly was a big time disc jockey in the Bay Area. He was on the two biggest soul stations there. KDIA, and originally he was on KSOL. That's when it was really good. And everybody listened to him. And in the East Bay, it was all about soul music. Over in the Bay, I mean, over in San Francisco, it was psychedelic music, you know, the Fillmore and all that. But in the East Bay, it was about soul music. And we would play all these sort of after-hours clubs. We played a place called Soul City, a place called Little Richards, a place called the Lucky 13, where you could, you know, dance after 2 a.m., before hours gigs at these black nightclubs like the Macesmo and you know places like that you know but then I met Doc and when I hired Doc he was the first hippie we ever met and he came in the band and you know we started changing by now I'm 17 years old the Fillmore West is going strong and we realize that's where we need to be and we know we're not getting in there with a name like the Motowns we were called the Motowns, you know, because my when we started playing soul music, my mother said, if you're going to play soul music, you should call yourselves the Motowns because you and your brother are from Detroit, you know. <laughs> and so we were the Motowns. We wore suits and had razor cuts. But we knew we weren't getting into the film or West like that. And I was doing a little bit of recording in Hayward at this little studio. And, you know, we were trying to think of a hippie name. You know, those they had all those weird names over in San Francisco, like Lothar and the Hand People and, you know, uh, Frumious Bandersnatch and you know, all these weird names. And those names didn't apply to us, but we needed something weird so we could get in the Fillmore. And I was on a break at the studio and there was a list and it was like three pages long. All these weird names, you know, Strawberry Alarm Clock, uh, you know, just goofy psychedelic. Fudge and yeah, all that stuff, you know. And I'm going through the list and I saw Tower of Power and I thought, Tower of Power, that describes us. And I go out to the guys, they go, hey, what about Tower of Power? They go, yeah, yeah, Tower of Power. And so we changed our name to Tower of Power. And then we got the audition at the Fillmore West. And that's when it all happened for us. Wow, that is some history. Thank you for that, Emilio. Sure. Must have been incredibly exciting. Um, just palpable energy in the air, buzz in the air in that part of the country with all that was happening and jumping off at that time. I can only imagine. It was the, the music mecca of the entire world, not just the United States. People were looking at San Francisco from all over the world. Bill Graham, you know, he, he, he started big time rock and roll. He started it, you know. I mean, they had, you know, rock and roll before him, you know, 
uh, all that stuff out of Cleveland, all that stuff. But Bill Graham, you know, what we have now today, arena rock, corporate rock and roll, you know, 18 semis and all that. He started that with the Fillmore West, you know. And what happened was he was doing so good, he decided to go into the record business and he started two record labels. One was distributed by Columbia, it was called Fillmore Records. And the other one was distributed by Atlantic, it was called San Francisco Records. And he brought out a producer from New York, this guy that produced Moby Grape. His name was David Rubinson. And they started to look for bands. Well, people were coming from all over the place, you know, from Austin, from Houston, from Florida, from Louisiana, from Detroit, from, you know, all over. They were coming to the Bay Area trying to get signed to his new record label and trying to get into the Fillmore West. And we had an audition at the Fillmore West in October. <laughs> what happened is around January, we were doing one of those after hours gigs. And, you know, after hours, you couldn't drink. Between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., no drinking. And Mick Gillette had gotten a, uh, a screwdriver. And he was drinking it, and the alcoholic beverage control came in, and they busted us for being underage. And they sent out, you know, letters to all the clubs where we played. I said, if you hire these guys, we're going to take away your liquor license. So all of a sudden, we had no gigs at all. My parents had moved back to Detroit, so we're alone and starving, you know. And all we got is this one gig in November at the Fillmore West. And we practiced, and I had written all those first songs for East Bay Grease, you know, Social Lubrication, The Price, The Skunk, The Goose, and The Fly, Sparkling in the Sand, Knock Yourself Out. I wrote all those songs with Doc, and we were practicing those songs, and then we're also practicing all our, our soul tunes by other people that we did that were really, really showstoppers because we wanted to make a really good set for our audition at the Fillmore West. But by the time we got there, we were so broken at the end of our rope. I told the guys, you know, if nothing happens to this, I'm going back to Detroit to spend the holidays with my family. If nothing comes of this, I'm not coming back. And Doc was devastated. And, you know, all the guys were like, well, what do you mean? You know, I was like, I can't do it. You know? And uh, I remember we did the audition, and um, we always started with this uh, James Brown tune called Open the Door. And, you know, you got to understand, there was like five bands that night, and the first four were all rock and roll bands, you know, three guitars and drums. You know, maybe a singer, maybe a keyboard player here, but they're all playing in the key of A and E, and, you know, basically, you know, dun, 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 you know, that was all night. So the crowd had already watched four bands, and then we walk out, <laughs> and we've got all these horns, you know, and all these ethnic ethnicities, you know, Mexican, black, you know, white guys, you know. And we come out there, we're wearing these, at the time, they used to have these shirts that were called velour shirts. And the velour had all worn off and you could see roach burns all over it, you know. <laughs> and we come out, so we're a motley looking crew and the crowd takes a look at us, you know, and they turn around and just start walking out. And we started out with Open the Door. And then we hit that groove, it's like somebody said, about face, because the whole crowd turned around and started walking back in. And we were about, I don't know, two songs into the set, and I saw this head poke out of the back, and that was Bill Graham. He had been in his office, 
listening to those four bands all night. And all of a sudden you heard some real funk and soul. You heard them horns, you always dug horns. And I guess that got his attention. And after the gig, uh, the next day I flew to Detroit and I had no intention of going back. I didn't think we, you know, we were gonna get it. And um, famous bands were being turned down. We were nobody. So I, I had no confidence at all that we were gonna get signed by Bill Graham. And I'm back there. And two days later, Doc calls me and he says, you got to come back. You got to come back. He dug it. And I go, who dug it? He goes, Bill Graham. He wants to sign us to a record deal. And at the time, I still had my Vox organ, right? But I hated playing it by then because at the clubs we played, there was always a B3. And I got used to the B3. And so the only time I used the Vox organ was, you know, if we were playing like a fair or someplace where I had to take my organ with me, you know. And uh, I told him, hock the Vox organ and send me a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> I flew back and he offered us uh, a record deal, a publishing deal, a management deal, and a booking deal. And uh, we got uh, this friend of ours was the manager of a band called The Loading Zone. He was stunned because The Loading Zone had been turned down. And they were already famous. They had a record out. And Sweet Linda Devine, their old singer, had been turned down, and he managed both of them. And all of a sudden, you know, the little young upstarts come in, and we go, we got a record deal, we don't know what to do. And he said, if I manage you, you have to do exactly what I tell you. And we're like, you're going to manage us? <laughs> and he started to manage us. He went in, he negotiated the contract. He said, number one, you have no negotiation at all, because you have no clout. He goes, but there's a few things I don't know, I'm going to push for to get changed. He goes, but you're signing the record deal. And so he got a couple of things changed and we signed it. And we did our first record and then it all changed. Wow. <laughs> you were uh, really in a tenuous situation there, though. It's just like so many you times, know, you know, right at the brink. Close. Yeah. And you just come through somehow. It was this close. Wow. So. You know, I'm looking at the credits for that uh, East Bay Grease, and it shows you on alto. Did you were you playing alto at that time? Yeah, I played alto. You know, and uh, but you know when I started uh, adding more horns, you know, I wanted the fatter sound, and I, I was playing alto because that guy that I idolized, Dennis Delacqua, played alto. You know, I had actually started on tenor, and when I saw Dennis, I went to the alto. But once I started, I got a couple more horns, and you know, one of my first horn players was Mick Gillette. You know, the guy was phenomenal. I mean, I didn't know he turned out to be one of the world's greatest horn players. He was just a kid in the neighborhood, you know. But uh, after that record, I said, no, I'm going back to the tenor. And I had the tenor already. And never played alto again. And what did uh, David Rubinson, I know best from working on all the Herbie Hancock records through the 70s. Yeah. And uh, Boy, what, did, what did he do for you guys? He produced that first record. And it's the first record that he, uh-oh, uh, what happened? I'm losing you. I, I, still, I got you still. Oh, okay. I don't got you. <laughs> Nothing changed. Uh, all right, I got you. So um, that's the first record that he engineered all by himself. Fred Cotero was his engineer. Excellent. And he came in and he set everything up. But he was on his way for a vacation or something. And David thought, I'm just going to do this myself, get my feet wet being an engineer. And, you know. He, he just, he dug the tunes, he helped us, you know, he gave us a few ideas, like on the ride out to Back on the Streets again, you know, we used to go, and he goes, now you gotta go, 
I'm back on the streets again. And we're going, oh, okay, you know, a few ideas like that. But basically, we had those songs. We've been playing them for a while. And I remember one thing he did, though. He wouldn't let us record You're Still a Young Man. He said, too mushy. <laughs> well, so and you already had that one in your hip pocket by then. Yeah, we, that was the first song we ever wrote. You know, so we, we really knew that one really good. And uh, but he let us record Sparkly in the Sand, which was even mushier, and it became the biggest hit on the record. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, he engineered it and produced it and mixed it. And I wasn't too happy about the mix, but, you know, I was a kid. I didn't know nothing. But I remember watching him and thinking to myself, uh, I would do it different, you know. But that being said, you know what? He produced that record and it changed our lives and I've been dead to him. Well, it set the foundation for sure. I mean, it's uh sound is is more raw than what would follow, but it's still, you know, all the ingredients are right there. The excitement was there, yeah. Um, so at that time, this came out in 70, I think, right? 70. So who were you looking at in terms of other horn sections that you emulated or that you were inspired by or well we weren't uh we were looking at right before we got signed uh chicago transit authority came out with their first record and blood sweat and tears with david clayton thomas came out and we listened to those records and we were very impressed but you know that that's more like a classical rock approach you know da -da 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 -da. you know we, we didn't play like that so the stuff that we tried to emulate there was a record by a soul singer named Howard Tate. And he did a song called Stop, and another one called um, Ain't Nobody Home, and a song called Look at Granny Run Run. And we worked up all those songs, and he was produced by a guy in New York named Jerry Ragavoy. And Jerry Ragavoy always brought in a really nice horn section, but the thing about the horn section he brought in, the baritone sax was really prominent. And we like that. And so we tried to emulate that sound. You know, and Doc's got a big, fat tone. And, you know, we had Mick Gillette on trumpet and eventually also on trombone. And then we had Greg Adams and me and Skip Mesquite. And the, the horn section was fat. And that's, that's what, you know, we also, we listened a lot to the Memphis horns, certainly James Brown. But really, that Jerry, Jerry Ragaford production of uh, Howard Tate, that was the emulation sound. And were, were you doing your own uh, arrangements out of the gate? Yeah, I was pretty much doing them, just head charts, you know, and uh, and then eventually Greg Adams came in the band, and he still did head charts for a while, but, you know, he would start to add stuff, and he was sort of coming from a stage band, high school stage band place, and he's trying to put all these sort of weird jazz chords, and we told him, no, that's not really what we do in soul music, you know, and so he kind of took a little time to work in, but then he really got it, you know, and he became a really wonderful uh, arranger and for you know 25 years almost he was our arranger you know and after that no more head charts you know not that's not to say that you know some of us wouldn't get an idea and go hey we should do this here you know but he was the arranger yeah i mean it was soul inspired but definitely you know hard, a little more dynamic and harder hitting uh than your typical soul music yeah because like i say we saw the spiders and we saw sly and the family stone and when we saw them, we were listening to the records. We saw them live. It was about live. You know, that, and even today, that's what Tower Power is about. It's about, we're a live band. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, people will tell you, yeah, they make good records, man. They write great songs. But live is the thing. <laughs> you know, that's what yeah. it's about. 
no doubt. Um, that second record, so you actually you got signed then by uh, Warner's, right? Yeah, we <laughs> kind of embarrassed ourselves and had a real uh, fight with Bill Graham, and for one year we were just battling with each other. And and then uh, our old manager came back, Ron Barnett, and he went in and settled it with Bill at one meeting. And uh, we knew Warner Brothers wanted to sign us because Warner's was signing all the bands in the Bay Area and, and also L.A. You know. And, uh, you know, they paid off Bill and uh, gave him a point off any future records out of their end. And uh, we did our first record, Bump City. And we said we want to record with Steve Cropper because, <laughs> you know, he made all the records that we idolized, those Sam and Dave Otis Redding records, you know. And so we went to Memphis. But what happened was... Steve had just left Stax Volt, and he was in a, uh, a legal dispute with Jim Stewart, the owner of Stax Volt. And so he couldn't produce anybody because he was under contract. You know, in other words, he couldn't produce them by himself. And so we went in there, and his engineer, Ronnie Capone, was engineering. And I guess in his mind, he was going to get it going, and then he was going to let Ronnie produce it. But as soon as we got there, he, he sort of explained that to us. We said, no, that's not our understanding. We came here and you, you're supposed to produce. And it was a little funny for about a day. But as soon as he heard us play, he said, yeah, no problem. I'll produce. But it's going to have to say Ronnie Capone produced. But all Ronnie did was engineer. Mm -hmm. And so we recorded with uh, Steve Cropper, all those songs, and we got finally to uh, – Record you're still a young man, you know, and that was like our biggest hit. Yeah, I mean that record definitely more focused, and uh, you know you got you got a funk uh, funkifies more in the pocket groove than what you I had heard before. Um, yeah, because you know when we did East Bay Grease, Garibaldi had just come in the band, uh, Rocco had just sort of been freed up when Garibaldi came in the band. It freed up Rocco. He just instinctively and naturally was able to just play a whole bunch of different stuff. You know, it just, he was just moved, you know. And, uh, but that was early in the game. Dave had just come. Rocco had just learned how to, you know, stretch out like that. But when we did Bump City, we were more, we were, they had been playing together for a while, you know. The only difference is that Steve and Ronnie, their approach was, they approached us like they were, you know, the way they did all their records with uh, Al Jackson and Duck Dunn and Steve on guitar and Booker T on keyboards, you know, and there was a lot of muting. So they went to Dave and they muted all his drums. If you listen to the drum sound, it's really dead sounding, you know. And I remember, you know, Dave at the time, I mean, his hi-hat work was phenomenal, you know, and all the, you know, and all they could think of what are we going to do? we got to get this hi-hat sound out of here. You know, they're trying, trying to mute it all, you know. And uh, so they kind of subdued it. And, and, and we were still new to recording. It's only the second record we ever made. So we couldn't get in the studio and emulate it the way we did on the stage, you know. It came out good. It was a big hit. But the next record, like I say, you know, I'm, I'm checking out David Rubinson in his production. Then I'm checking out Steve Cropper, who's an idol. And I, you know, I'm still, I'm looking, I'm going, you know, I would have done some different things, you know? And so the next record, uh, I did it myself, you know? And, uh, you know, for the next few records, it always says, 
Emilio Castillo and Tower of Power because, you know, I didn't have the gumption to say I'm doing it, you know, but basically that was my, my deal. I was in the studio making the record. Everybody's chiming in, of course, you know, and saying, why don't we do this, why don't we do that? But I'm there, you know, producing the record and then mixing it as well, you know. And that was a process, a learning process for me. After I did the Tower of Power album, of What Is Hip on it, that's right when all that uh, Philly International music started coming out. You know, the Spinners and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and the Stylistics and all that stuff. And there was a producer over there named Tom Bell. Oh, yeah. He did this record on the Spinners. I think there was like six number one hits on it. And I studied that record constantly, you know, how he placed the horns, how he spread out the vocals, how he did the strings, you know, the echo, and just everything about it, you know, the songwriting, the lyrics, the hooks. Just I, I just studied it over and over. And that's what I was doing when I did the Back to Old Group. And then my production chops got better. Mm. On um, Bump City, uh, a couple of things I want to ask you before moving on. Uh, one was, I thought I heard a little Meters influence in some of that. So I don't know. We haven't mentioned absolutely. it, but I think. Uh, absolutely. You know, we used to do a, uh, Sissy Strut, and, you know, we were listening to Kick a Pie Pie and all that stuff. The Meters, because they were playing funk. You know, it'd be like. When we came up, you know, when Sly was playing at the nightclub, uh, one of the big songs was Funky Broadway by Dyke and the Blazers. And, you know, I don't know if you ever heard that version, but at the end of it, it's just drums. It fades out on drums. He's like, and people were like, every band, every drummer, every musician was like, man, did you hear that drummer at the end of that right out, you know? And, and uh, that's when funk really started coming in. Rocco and, of course, Dave and all of us. That, that was the thing. And so we started playing a lot of Dyke and the Blazers, like let a woman be a woman, let a man be a man, and, you know, funky Broadway and stuff like that. And, this, and that's when we got into the meters. And anything that was funky, you know, messing with the beat. It became a big part of what we do. Mm 